thankful for each one that's here this morning, but I'm especially thankful for the presence of the Holy Spirit and for God seeing fit to uh, join us here in this place. It's His great desire, I don't know if you could say it's His greatest desire, but it's His great desire for His name to be praised, for His Son to be exalted, for His creatures to worship Him. And it is our greatest privilege, truly, it's our greatest privilege to worship Him and to see a measure of His glory revealed. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person. He is the revelation of God's glory to humanity. And He has revealed Himself in His Word. And it's our privilege to look into His Word this morning and pray for a clear glimpse of Christ, our Savior. I'd like to turn to the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 10. We have been going through Romans for some time and went through Romans 9 on Wednesday night several weeks ago. And now we're here to chapter 10. And I ask you to pray as we go through this passage of Scripture. We'll probably go through the whole chapter. Seems like we generally cover a whole chapter at a time. And ask you to pray that God would bless us with light and discernment and judgment upon His Word. This is probably one of the most difficult passages I can imagine preaching through in Scripture. There's a verse in this chapter that I didn't even know was in the Bible until I went to a, a friend of mine invited me to go to a church service uh, for co-workers of his, and it was in a stadium. I had never been to a, a worship service that was that large, and it was uh, of a different order, and it was all about raising money so the preachers could go preach. And he used one of these verses here, and I was shocked. I had never heard this verse mentioned before. And the way he used it, I think, was wrong. I think he misinterpreted it, and he made it seem like if you didn't give money that day, that he wasn't going to be able to go preach. And if he wasn't able to go preach, that there were people that were going to die and go to hell because of his inability to go, because of your stinginess to give. That was the way it was presented. I don't believe that's what the verse was teaching, and we'll get to that here in a moment. Romans chapter 10. Paul has, in Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9, has been talking. He's reached almost a climax when it comes to our understanding of salvation by grace. And all that that implies, the, the, the teaching that salvation is by grace is, uh, is something you can only know uh, by divine revelation. Mankind left to himself, uh, his world history, and all the uh, religions of the world, uh, excluding Christianity, have this one thing in common, and that is that the belief that salvation is by works, that you must uh, perform. In fact, our neighbor this morning, she's a Christian, but she said, she really summarized it very briefly. She said, Showing off what she had got for Christmas, she said, if you get nice things, it's because you've been a good person. She said, look what I've got. She said, I must have been a really good person. And that's what they sing. The kids sing the Christmas song about Santa Claus. Better watch out. You better not pass. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's got a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. That's what worse religion says. That 
if you're a good person, you're going to get good things. If you're a bad person, you're going to get bad things. So if you want the ultimate good, which is to go to heaven and to be with God, you've got to be a really good person. That's what all religions have in common, all false religions. It's only by divine revelation and embraced by, by divinely given faith that we learn about the fact that salvation is by grace. That you can't save yourself, that you can't be good enough, you can't perform any number of works or good deeds in order to, as we sang this song this morning, there's nothing we can do for others to atone for sin. It's only by the free and sovereign grace of God. Only God could appease and satisfy divine justice and the, uh, the righteous uh, judgment of God, his offense, his personal offense with our sin. The personal affront and the transgression breaking his law could only be redeemed and remedied and satisfied by God himself. That's why it took the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. God's holiness is magnified on the cross. And God in the Old Testament makes it very clear that it's important for his people to understand the holiness of God. You can't appreciate the grace of God. You can't see the grace of God if you don't have a solid solid understanding of the holiness of God. That God cannot compromise with sin. God cannot tolerate sin. God cannot stand sin. Sin is an affront to his nature. It is uh, like a horrible smell in his nostrils. He hates sin. He hates the garment spotted by the flesh. He hates anything that smacks of sin, anything that uh, indicates sin. Sin is a rebellion against God. Sin is an affront to God's character, to his nature. God says sin must be punished. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God's promise. He hates sin. Sin must be punished. If you don't understand the holiness of God, you're not going to understand why it was important, why it was necessary for Jesus Christ to die in order for sinners to be saved. If you think God is a manby-pamby God, that he's just a a big, nice Santa Claus who's going to uh, compare your good deeds with your bad deeds, and if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then that's good enough for him. He's going to overlook the rest. You don't understand the God of the Bible. God requires a full payment and satisfaction for your sins. And just like an archer, when you say you've missed the mark, that's what sin is, is missing the mark. If the archer aims and he hits close to the bullseye but doesn't hit the bullseye, he's missed the mark. doesn't matter if you came within one inch or within 100 feet. You've missed the mark. And God says he demands perfect and complete obedience and adherence to his law. If you've messed up one time or you've messed up a million times, you've missed the mark. And God's not going to compromise whether you're one inch off or whether you're 100 miles off. He's not going to compromise his holiness. He is a holy, holy, holy God. It's because of that and because of his holiness combined with his unconditional, discriminating love that Jesus Christ came. And you see God's holiness and you see God's love as the psalmist poetically and beautifully describes coming together and kissing the cross there. The nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ is God's holiness and God's love coming together. So it's very fitting that blood symbolizes and the color red symbolizes love in our culture. God's love ran blood in the death of Jesus Christ. Paul has come to this in teaching about salvation by grace and what that means. And in Romans 8, he very wonderfully uh, describes for us that not only does that mean that 
You have hope that when you uh, die, your soul's going to go to heaven and your body's going to be resurrected and you're going to be with the Lord forever. That's ultimately what Jesus came to accomplish. But in God's sovereignty and in God's grace, you find out that your redemption not only applies to your eternal life, but it applies to this time world. That even in the sorrows, even in the trials, even in the spiritual warfare that you're facing, we had it uh, wonderfully described in the book we read this week, Carl and I read about this warfare. And when you break it down, the spiritual warfare that's taking place, listen to this, is between God and man's pride. Is that what it says? Was it God's grace and man's pride? I can't remember now exactly what it was, but it was the, the fact that it's man's pride that is uh, behind so much of the spiritual conflict that's taking place. We know ultimately it's a spiritual warfare and it is the devil and the demons of hell that's stirring it up. But I told my children this morning, in the Garden of Eden, Satan could have had no power over Adam and Eve. It was only in tempting them and encouraging them to sin that he had his influence. Adam and Eve had their lives in their hand when they chose to sin. Satan can't hurt you other than encouraging you to sin and rebel against God. He can't reach out with a, a physical hand and strangle you, but he can it hold sinful enticements in front of you. And the Bible says that the flesh, the carnal lust of the flesh, war against the soul. And so our pride and our carnal desires—that's what uh, hurts our relationship with God. But even in all of that, even in this spiritual uh, conflict that we're in the midst of, in this fallen world of sin and death and sorrow, there's hope. Even in the, the very life that you're living now. Because the Apostle Paul says in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. You talk about giving uh, gifts this morning and receiving gifts. Here's God's gift. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God would not spare his son, if God would give you his only begotten, his beloved son, Jesus Christ, then what good thing is he going to withhold from you if there's anything that you need for your spiritual good, for your spiritual profit, for your edification, for your growth in godliness, for your walk with the Lord? What good thing would he withhold? Would he, what, what possibly could he withhold that you stand in need of? There's nothing. There's nothing that he's going to hold back on. There's nothing that he's uh, going to uh, keep from, from you having. And even in all of the difficulties that you face... I believe very strongly that he's working in it for his purposes, for his glory, for your good, for your spiritual benefit. So he gives you that hope that in all of the seasons of life, by faith we can lay hold of the fact that Jesus Christ has paid for my sins and I'm no longer a guilty sinner under the judgment of God. I've made this point a number of times and I want to keep making this point because I need to be reminded of it. And possibly you do as well. That when God chastens us as his children, it's as a loving father disciplining his child for his own spiritual profit. There is no, remember God is holy, there is no double payment for debt. If you have a debt and someone comes along and pays your debt, you're free from that debt. doesn't matter who paid it. doesn't matter if you asked them to or not. You're free from the debt. Somebody could unjustly come along and say, hey, you didn't pay me, so you're going to have to pay me even though the debt's been paid. But God is not unjust. If the debt's been paid, God's not going to require double payment. Jesus Christ paid your sin debt. Hebrews 12 says that when God chastens us, he chastens us as a loving father. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. 
For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? So if you're going through a trial, you say, well, this is certainly something I deserve because of X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C, and all these decisions I've made. This is certainly what I deserve. The fact is, no, you deserve a lot worse. Secondly, the fact is that Jesus Christ, having paid the debt for your sins, you're not suffering punishment for your sins in the sense of retribution. God's not getting even with you. God's not making you suffer until you pay for your sin. You couldn't do that. Take an eternity in hell for you to pay for one sin. But God's lovingly chasing you as a father chases his son. The debt has been paid. The sin has been forgiven. God sees you as he sees his son, Jesus Christ, which is holy and without blame. Legally in God's sight, you are justified, you are pardoned, you are forgiven by the sovereign and free grace of God. Romans 9 talks about God's election of his people and how the election of Israel is a, is a spiritual type of God's election of his people in every nation, tribe, and tongue. The nation of Israel, the national election of, of the country of Israel, of the, of the people, the descendants of Abraham, was a, a picture for us of God's election of his people in Christ. Christ is described even as, as Israel. As God's chosen one. And in Christ, you've been chosen. And he talks about in Romans 9 11 how the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Very well known story talking about uh, Jacob and Esau. Their mother, uh, Rebekah, was barren and unable to have children. Her mother in law, Sarah, had had the same problem. And you remember what happened with Abraham and Sarah. God said, Abraham, you're going to have a child. And he told that and to Abraham and Sarah heard it. And she went and, went and she laughed because of her unbelief. She was an old woman. Abraham was an old man. And she said, can I have pleasure of my husband, of my Lord, of Abraham, when I'm an old woman? And God called her on the carpet and said, you laughed. And she said, no, I didn't laugh. Well, they went through a period of time. It was probably uh, more than 13 years of waiting for God to fulfill that promise. And during that time, they had a period of unbelief. And Sarah said, well, maybe God's promise isn't going to happen unless we, unless we help God out. So she said, let's, let's come up with a plan to help this come to pass. Abraham, you can go into my handmaiden, Hagar. And if she conceives, maybe that's the child God was talking about. And they had Ishmael. Abraham and Hagar had Ishmael. After Ishmael was born, God came to Abraham and said, This is not what I intended. This is not who I promised. He said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. God had promised Abraham he was going to have a child. Through that child, the nations will be blessed because Jesus Christ will be born from the lineage of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Isaac is called the child of promise, and Ishmael is referred to as as the child of the flesh. Isaac was born by the supernatural power and working of the grace of God upon uh, Abraham and Sarah, blessing them to conceive. Isaac was a type and a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who would be born to the Virgin Mary by the same means, by the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon her. And God says that His children, even in our day and age, throughout all time, His children are born... The same way, it's by the supernatural grace and power of God in the new birth. Regeneration, Isaac's birth was a foreshadowing not only of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, 
but a, a, a type and a picture for us of the spiritual birth of all of God's children. It's by the promise of God. It's by the power of God. It's by the grace of God. And it's according to election. Not of works, but of Him that called. Your new birth, your election is based upon not anything that God saw in you, not anything that you've done, but purely by the grace of election, whom He chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He goes down in Romans chapter 9. He talks about the, you could say, irony and uh, his disappointment. He says that he had a great desire and love for his brethren after the flesh, his kinsmen, the Israelites, the nation of Israel. And it's almost ironic here that they had the word of God for so long. And when Jesus Christ came, by and large, the Jewish nation rejected him. And the Gentiles believed on him. Those who had been prepared, those who had all the the sacrifices and all the ceremonies and all the ordinances and all the laws and all the word of God who had the the best uh, circumstances imaginable, divinely appointed circumstances to, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, by and large, rejected him. And that just shows the necessity for the new birth in order to believe on Jesus Christ. You can't in the flesh, based on the best circumstances, you could be the best parents, you could have the best grandparents, you could have the best uh, pastor, you could be exposed to the best preaching, but apart from the new birth, you're going to reject Jesus Christ. That's what the nation of Israel did. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, the murderer. Crucify the Son of God. Well, he says it's interesting to note. It's an indication of God's power and grace that the Gentiles delighted in the very thing that the Jews rejected and hated. The Gentiles believed and received Jesus Christ. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. is kind of like this. Let's say you go to church your whole life. You're raised in a Christian home. You go to church every Sunday. You read the Bible. Maybe you don't like to, but you read the Bible because you know that's what good people do. You try to live a moral life. That's what the Jews were doing. They were, uh, they were attaining to righteousness. They were pursuing righteousness. And then you have this wicked uh, man or woman that comes off the street. They never went to church a day in their life. They never opened the Bible. They never uh, gave any money to the poor. They never did anything moral or what we would call godly or righteous. They hear the preaching of the gospel. They delight in it. They say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God like Zacchaeus. And then repent. Remember, when Zacchaeus believed, he repented. And he showed his repentance by saying, I'm going to give back everything that I took wrongfully. And I'm going to give him four times as much. He showed repentance. Remember, John the Baptist said, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. And he followed after the Lord. Well, these Gentiles, they hear the gospel, they repent, they believe, and take up their cross and follow Jesus. And God says, they're righteous, even though they didn't live a godly life, a godly day in their life. The fact that they have repented and believe on Jesus Christ, God says, they're righteous. And the Jews who are trying to live moral, godly lifestyles and making all the sacrifices that come along with that, They've been rejected by God because what did they do? They stumbled at the stumbling block. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, had not attained to the law of righteousness. They weren't seeking God's righteousness. What does the Bible say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and your righteousness? 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33, and His righteousness. Israel was following after the law of righteousness but didn't attain to it because they sought it not by faith but as it were by the works of the law. They were seeking to build up their own righteousness based upon their own works, based upon their own efforts, based upon their own ingenuity and their own strength. And they were very ingenuous. They were very, uh, uh, however you say that word, they took the law of God and they said, well, this is so high, this is so hard, we're not going to be able to jump over this, uh, you know, those bars that the, the gymnasts jump over, what are those called? where they get the stick and they fly over it, the pole bar. They say, that's so high, we're not going to be able to get over that. So here's what we'll do. We'll take God's standard of perfection and we'll put it down here so we can step over it. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were converting and perverting the law of God so that they could, in their works righteousness, make a show of being a good person. Oh, we're keeping the law of God. They weren't seeking it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. The law was never meant to bring in uh, your own righteousness by your own works. The law was to show us and to be a schoolmaster until that which was perfect should come, which is Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law. And when you believe on him, you're free from that tutor. You're free from that schoolmaster. You've come to full age, and now you find out what it really means to be uh, a godly man or woman, what it really means to be saved, what it really means to be a Christian, and that is to be simply a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you continue in my word, the Lord Jesus Christ said, then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You're not going to be ashamed of him if you believe on him. If you have God-given faith, you're not going to be embarrassed to own him as your Lord, and to follow after Him. Romans chapter 10. All that to get to Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So I believe in this verse he's talking about the nation of Israel. And I know there may be different interpretations on that, and if you have a better, more accurate interpretation, then... I hope you'll help me to see it clearly. I want to see it and I want to present it the way God intends it. My prayer to God for Israel is that I might be saved. Now this is why I believe he's talking about the nation of Israel. That he started talking about in Romans 9. He says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, the Jewish nation, and you can see it today. You go to New York City, or you go to California, or you go to the land of Israel, you will find zealous men and women who are committed Jews and they uh, have the Torah and they keep the Sabbath and they are zealous for God. They're zealous for the God of the Old Testament of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have a zeal of God, Paul says, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they don't have saving faith. I believe that's what he's talking about when he says according to knowledge. They may have the word of God but the word of God without God-given faith doesn't benefit you. It may help you uh, avoid certain pitfalls that people who don't have the word of God uh, might fall into. But the fact is that what you need for salvation is for the word of God to be written upon your heart. As he talks about in, I believe, Hebrews chapter 10, the new covenant. God would inscribe his word and his law upon the hearts of his people in the new birth. I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness 
have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's righteousness, Jesus fulfilled to the law and to the tittle. He fulfilled every, uh, to the jot and tittle of the law. He says in the, the nation of Israel that Jews, they're going about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. So in other words, there's two kinds of righteousness. Now only one man fulfilled the righteousness that Moses talked about, the righteousness of the law. That's Jesus Christ. Because what did Moses say about the righteousness of the law? The man which doeth those things shall live by them. So if you're under the law, Moses says you have to do everything perfectly. But there's another righteousness. That's the righteousness of God. And that's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the salvation by grace. That's Jesus Christ, His perfection and His beauty and His holiness being freely given to pardoned sinners. Jesus Christ, when He hung on the cross, your guilt was imputed to Him. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. His guilt, your guilt was imputed to Him and His righteousness is imputed to you. You can think of it like a garment that's put on you that you can't take off. A garment of righteousness, of holiness. God has clothed you in. So this righteousness is not from your perfect obedience to the law. This righteousness is from Jesus' perfect obedience to the law. This is the righteousness of God. And he says this is what the Jews had rejected. Maybe they thought they were good enough without it. Maybe they didn't realize their need for it. Maybe they thought God was like them. And his standard was much lower than what it is. But for whatever reason, they had rejected God's Son. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, justification by faith is what he's talking about here. And when you take that topic, justification by faith, in its context, you realize that justification is by grace. That it's by Jesus Christ. It's by his death and his shed blood. That justification, the act of God making a sinner righteous, is the is the work of God's grace. But when you take it in the sense of God declaring you righteous, you have to mark it under here that the scriptural interpretation is to everyone that believe it. In other words, God is not going to own you as one of his children until you believe publicly. He's not going to publicly own you as one of his children. Now, in, a, in the covenant of grace... Before the foundation of the world, you're His. You're His in Jesus Christ. But as far as His uh, public declaration that you're one of His children, I believe the scriptural uh, way you have to stand, the scriptural rock you have to stand upon, is that it's when you believe. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, with saving faith, 
Not just that he's a historical man, but you believe he's the son of God and you worship him as the son of God. God says you're righteous. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what my son has done for you. Your faith is simply the evidence that God has quickened you. And if he quickened you, it's because he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And when we read the New Testament, the focus is upon what do you think of Jesus Christ? That's what Jesus said. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What think ye of Christ? And when you take the gospel to those who may not have heard of Christ, you tell them about Christ, you say, what think ye of Christ? That's the question. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That was the sticking point for the Jews. Why did they reject him? Because he claimed to be God's son. And as God's son, he made himself equal with God. And the Jews, in their mind, was that was breaking the third commandment. He was making himself equal with God. He was blaspheming God. And the radical doctrine of the Christian church in the early days and even in our day is that Jesus is not just a good teacher, not just a moral man whose life had a huge and tremendous impact upon millions and millions and millions of people over many, 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 many years. But he, he is truly who he claimed to be which is the eternal Son of God, the eternal Logos, the Word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And He gives you the promise that if you believe He's who He said He is, if God accepts that as righteousness. God takes that faith and says, it doesn't matter if you've broken all the laws, my Son fulfilled it perfectly. And having accepted my Son, having believed on my Son, I accept you as righteous. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 10. And you've got to take that revelation in, in the context of everything else that God has said about salvation by grace. For Moses described the righteousness which is the law, the, the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. In other words, there's two extremes here that he addresses. One is those who confess the Lord Jesus, but they don't believe in their heart. They confess Him for external motives. The other is those who believe in their heart, but don't confess Him publicly. He says you can't have either or. It's got to be both. If you believe in your heart, you've got to confess Him publicly. If you confess Him publicly, you better believe Him in your heart. You better be sincere, not be the voice of a hypocrite. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, you can, you can break this down. You can say, well, what kind of salvation is that talking about? Is that talking about eternal salvation or timely salvation? He doesn't qualify. He just says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Now, you may be in a car accident and you may not be a Christian. And you might just 
Call upon the name of the Lord in a moment of desperation. That may be the first time you ever talk to Him. Sometimes His name is used as an, as an explicitive. And that's blasphemy. But He's talking about calling upon the name of the Lord in the sense of spiritual, earnest prayer where you realize your only hope is in the Lord. And it may be because you feel the weight and guilt of your sin, or maybe because you have a, a situation that you need wisdom in, and you can't figure out any solution apart from, from God helping you. Like we heard last Sunday, that with God all things are possible. There's nothing impossible with Him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whatever your <clears throat> deliverance is that you stand in need of, I want to give you this promise. God says if you call upon Him in faith, He's going to save you. And what do you need salvation from? Matthew one twenty one. He shall save His people from their sins. If you're struggling with the weight and guilt of your sin this morning, God says call upon the name of my Son and you'll be saved. <clears throat> How then shall they call on Him? In whom they have not believed. And how shall they believe in him. In whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher. And how shall they preach. Except they be sent. Now this is where that preacher that I referred to earlier. Got off the, the train tracks. He said how shall they preach except they be sent. And he said. He implied that the sending was done by those who were given. I believe that the sending is done by the Holy Spirit. That it's God that equips, it's God that sends, it's God that has spread His gospel throughout the world. And it's the Word of God that faith responds to. You've got to have the Word of God, you've got to have the promises of God, you've got to have the revelation of Jesus Christ in order for you to respond in faith. Now there are situations where little babies die and there's those who never hear the gospel preached and we can talk about all the, uh, the peripheral circumstances that take place. But I want you to know that God is able to reach His people no matter what circumstances they're in, no matter what situation they're in. And we live in a time in which the gospel has been spread abundantly. I believe God's children all over the world, in many, many places, you could say most places, I don't know for sure, but in many places, the word of God is available and is preached and is taught. Maybe not to its full extent about salvation by grace, but the word of God is available. Even before the New Testament, what did Jesus say? I believe Jesus said, maybe Paul, that Moses was preached in every place or in every city. That even then, the Old Testament had, had spread itself throughout the world. God's Word is available. And I would submit to you that the second greatest gift God can give you as His children... First is, of course, His Son, Jesus Christ, and salvation from your sins. But the second greatest gift in my mind, which I think is very intimately associated with the first one, is the knowledge of your salvation. The knowledge that Jesus died for you. And the implications for you of what that means when it comes to serving God. I don't believe God has uh, regenerated millions and then leaves them in the dark to serve in gross idolatry the Lord. I believe he wants his people to know the truth. To know that Jesus is the Son of God. And on top of that, to know that salvation is by grace. 
We ought to be more motivated and more zealous than we are. I ought to be more motivated to talk about salvation by grace. Because as common as the word of God is around the world, the message of the salvation is entirely by God's free and sovereign grace, in my mind, is, is much less proclaimed, is much less known. And we should have a desire for God's people to be set free from the bondage of laboring under the works salvation teaching. How shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. We're simply telling the good story, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. He says, For they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. In other words, God wants his word to impact the lives of his people. It takes the new birth for you to respond in faith, but God wants you to have the word of God to believe. He wants his word to be spread. He wants his people to believe his word. But they have not, they have not obeyed the gospel. But just because you hear the gospel with the audible sound of it, that's not enough. There has to be God's grace in order for you to believe and to hear with the spiritual ear preaching of the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. So, according to Paul, God's word by the gospel preacher or the preachers in creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars, God's handiwork in creation, he says their words have gone into the ends of the world. Their sound went into all the earth. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Contrasting the response of the Gentiles who didn't seek after God and they found him. And those who thought they were serving God and were seeking after God. And God says, all day long I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Pick up a verse or two in Romans 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? So in other words, based upon what he said here in 9, 10, 9 and 10, has God cast away the nation of Israel? Has God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. In other words, election, uh, salvation by grace, is not just for Gentiles. God's election of his people extends also to the tribe of Israel, that chosen nation God had chosen out of them, his people, 
to be saved and to be redeemed, to be born again, his elect out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, including the nation of Israel. Paul says, I'm also an Israelite. You remember how Paul was in his natural condition? He was zealous for God. He was righteous according to the law as far as man's judgment is concerned. Philippians chapter 3 is Paul's resume of his self-righteousness. He says, he was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the stock of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And as touching the law, he was a Pharisee. Concerning his zeal for God, how zealous was he for God, but not according to knowledge? He persecuted the church. He was ready to stomp out this sect, this heresy, this idol-worshiping group called the, the Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was persecuting them, even unto death, putting them in prison. That was his zeal for God. That was his service to God. You don't have to look far to see in our own flesh and outside us in the world where zeal for God manifests itself in some horrible and diabolical things in the treatment of others. Persecuting the church, he says, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. As far as mankind is concerned, as far as a sinful man is concerned, Paul is as good as it gets. But think what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. But by the grace of God, when Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, to persecute the Christians, to put them in prison, to drag them back to Jerusalem for judgment, he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was struck blind. And he was without food for three days. And the Lord said, Saul, Saul, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? He knew he was the Lord. He just didn't know who he was. He knew whoever he was talking to was the Lord. Maybe that's the way it is for you today. Maybe you know who's in charge of your life. And Jesus said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And then he said, What we should say too, what would thou have me to do? You're the Lord. What do you want me to do? And he said, Go into this city and it'll be told thee what to do. Paul says, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. In other words, Paul's agenda is not about establishing his righteousness. It's not about promoting Paul's righteousness. It's not about showing how good Paul is. He says, all I want to do is be found in Jesus, and found not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. He says, I want that righteousness of Christ. I want to possess that. I want to be the heir of that. He says, I want to be found in Christ. The the righteousness which is through faith, the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Faith in Christ is not simply believing that he's the son of God. But like the apostle Paul said, what would thou have me to do? It's, Manifest itself in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Whatever he called you to do, whatever he called you to sacrifice for him, to realize he sacrificed much more for you. Wherever he called you to go, we sing, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. Prisons with palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. That's the kind of saving faith that God gives to his children. 
That's the kind of saving faith that God says, this man or this person is righteous. No, they're not perfect. No, they haven't obeyed me perfectly. But they are identified with my son, Jesus Christ. They are inseparably united to him by the Holy Spirit. And because of the virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, I own them as my child and the heirs of righteousness and heirs of all that God possesses. They are my heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Paul says there's hope for any man or woman. It doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived. It doesn't matter what kind of childhood you had. It doesn't matter what kind of wickedness is in your heart because the more you get to know the Lord, the more you find out how bad you really are. There's hope for any man or woman, boy or girl, black or white, rich or poor, intelligent or an imbecile. There's hope for the sick and for the healthy, for the strong and for the weak, for any man or woman who believes Jesus is the Son of God. Pray God will bless you and bless us all with a closer walk with Him.